0: Welcome to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in finance or international development or even the legal field as it relates to finding sustainable solutions to help lift poor countries out of dire poverty, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest works at a government agency you probably haven't heard of before. It's called the Millennium Challenge Corporation or MCC. And it was established by Congress in January 2004 to deliver smart U.S. foreign assistance by focusing on good policies, full engagement by the governments in these poor countries, and results. But before I introduce you to Jim Hallmark, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's our weekly newsletter that we blast out on Monday mornings with a sneak peek of the new episodes and the guests we're going to be featuring that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time. The number 4coffee.org and the sign up box is right there on the home page. Now, my Java lovers, I have a confession to make. Have you ever told someone you would call them, maybe follow up with them about something and then months and months go by and you forget? Or maybe when you think about it, it's like right before you fall asleep and the next morning you've forgotten about it all over again? Well, this is one of those situations. And it's even more embarrassing because my next guest is also one of my wonderful neighbors. This was absolutely one of the very first interviews I did on t for c And you'll be able to tell right away because I hadn't even thought to call our community Java junkies. And I had no real structure to the interview either. And it's also why I don't say thank you and goodbye at the end of the interview. You are definitely seeing, or maybe I should say listening to how the sausage gets made here at T4C. So please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew, because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my delightful next guest is Jim Hallmark, the Director of Finance, Investment and Trade at the Millennium Challenge Corporation. Since joining MCC as one of its first Fifty employees, Jim has worked tirelessly with members of his team to help developing countries structure and manage public-private partnerships, which he'll explain in our interview, as well as other types of blended finance transactions to develop infrastructure and other public services in Africa, Eurasia, and Latin America. Jim starts off our caffeinated chat, which we recorded late one evening in my basement, on a microphone I no longer use, explaining what the MCC is and what it does.
1: The best way to think about MCC is we are a U.S. government investment fund. So it is the U.S. government taking U.S. tax dollars and putting it into a fund. And what we focus on is financing basic infrastructure in poor countries around the world, meaning countries that have a GDP of, say, $3,500 or less. And what we are financing is really basic infrastructure like transport infrastructure, like roads, ports, airports, energy, generation, transmission, distribution, water supply and sanitation, educational Infrastructure like school systems at a national level, you know, that sort of really basic infrastructure that a country needs for its economy to function. Without that basic infrastructure, the economy just doesn't really flow very well. So, what MCC does is in 2004, it was established to really focus on identifying poor but well governed countries and working with those countries to provide the key basic infrastructure that they need in order to turbocharge their economies. So that's what we do. My specific job within MCC is, so we will put in, let's give an example of, we're going to put in $300 million in order to do a toll road or an energy generation plant. And what I specifically am focused on is how do we galvanize or catalyze private capital in and around our publicly funded projects? So if it's a road that we're financing or a power generation plant, how can we get private capital to come in and around what we're doing to basically leverage our public money to have a bigger impact and bring in a lot more private capital and private investment? Because at the end of the day investment at large is really the blood of an economy in the world. And so my job is not just to rely on MCC financing, but trying to attract private investment around leverage, around our public money to really just increase the impact of what we're doing.
0: So are you looking for private investment in those countries and other? Okay. So how do you do that? Like what's your typical day?
1: Let me take two examples of what I would describe my job is, is our group, the Finance Investment and Trade Group, or what we call FIT, is what we try to do is attract private investment in and around our publicly funded projects, whether it's an airport or an energy project or a water project. And so when I say in and around, it could be something where when I say in a project, let's just say that is an airport, we need to rehabilitate this airport in order to expand the airport, in order to accommodate the economic growth in the country. If it's too small, that's a ceiling on their economy. We could finance that. We could just put in $200 million to expand that airport, or we could try to help concession that airport for a 10 or 15 year period where private investment comes in there. They have to design, finance, construct, operate and maintain the airport for a 10-year period, all the risk of doing all that is transferred to them. If they do it well, they can make a profit. If they don't do it well, then the airport comes back to the government after 10 years. So for someone who really knows what they're doing, it's an opportunity for the private sector to come in and say, yeah, government, we can come in with our own money and improve this airport. And that allows you, government, to take your money and focus it on other areas like social areas like health or education. So basically what we're doing is we're allowing the government to have more resources, private investment for infrastructure that private capital would be interested in. And then there's other areas of the economy infrastructure that the private sector is not as much interested like health or education. So now because you've gotten private capital to do roads or energy or a port, the government then can take all of its money and really focus on other areas that really increase the amount of funding that a government has available to it. We might also have something where we fund 100% of a road or an energy project or a water project. And once that road is there, let's say that we built a road from a really fertile agricultural area to the port. And all of a sudden you opened up an entire new corridor in the country and opened up a new fertile area. And what you want to try to do is really catalyze businesses, the growth of businesses along that road in order to create jobs and economic activity so that the economy really grows very quickly. But how can we do that? So what we will do is help identify potential Potential private investment that would be cropping up along that highway and help support them in some way. We might provide key public goods that they need, like side roads or workforce development or that sort of thing. So, that they're more interested in investing along that new highway that we put in. So, you see, those are two examples of where we would bring in private capital in the actual projects that we're doing the port, the highway, you know, whatever it is. Or if we fund a piece of infrastructure ourselves, we are helping galvanize the growth of private businesses to crop up along the piece of infrastructure that we've done.
0: And so how do you do that? What does Jim Hallmark do? Like, Do you have to spend a lot of time in those countries where the projects are and meetings? And like, how does this happen?
1: Yeah. So let's take the example of the airport that I talked about. So in that case, you would have an airport that we want to concession this airport out for a 10-year period? Well, you know, it's kind of a three-step process. The first step is, in many cases, there's probably 10 or 20 potential projects that you could do. It could be a number of different airports, for example, or it could be a number of other infrastructure. So you want to do a quick screening of what are the best projects that you could develop as a public-private partnership. You want to screen it from a political, legal, environmental, social, technical, financial, economic perspective in order to see if that is an ideal candidate mm-hmm. for a project to be developed as a PPP. That's kind of a quick and dirty
0: study. So are you doing that or are there researchers? We would hire, would hire like we would consultants hire, or somebody to right. go and do that kind of assessment. That's right.
1: You're hiring specialists who can do all of that because you're looking at things from seven different perspectives, legal, environmental, social, financial, economic, and political. Mm -hmm. And they are specialists in each of those areas. So you would bring in a firm who can do a quick and dirty study of all of those areas to determine, yeah, this looks like a project that is probably pretty good. This airport, we think we could probably develop that as a PPP. And then step two is then let's do a deep dive on that. So you bring in a firm that has same sort of expertise, but they're going to do a really deep dive. They're going to build financial models. They're going to be doing- um, Risk
0: analysis. Yeah,
1: environmental impact assessments, all sorts of things from those seven areas that I identified, but a much deeper dive because you need to have a really airtight package in order to present to the market because the third step is then you hire- What we would call a transaction advisor, which would be bankers, lawyers, engineers, who would put together this package and go out to the market and find out who are the people who run airports around the world who would be interested in coming here and maybe operating this airport financing, designing, building, operating, maintaining this airport for 10 or 15 years. And there's a lot of those people around the world, but you have to put together a big package that you will present to the market so that they can see, hey, this is a serious project. They've done their homework on this. And here are all the key, the diligence has been done on this project. And this is something that would be attractive, and we're going to bid on it. And, and then, do
0: you interview them? Is that what's going no, on? No, but like then, what does your team do then? Where, so, are where you guys come in? So,
1: our team is really managing a lot of. We have to know enough about the transactions in order to be able to manage, but you're bringing in a lot of expertise. Each one of those three stages at the early screening stage, or what I call the feasibility stage, which is the second stage, or the third stage, which is the transaction advisor. All of these people are consortium of a lot of different expertise. We are managing those people to make sure that what they are doing is legitimate and is in the best interest of the country where we are working. And it's a good expenditure of our money. So we are managing and looking at what they're doing to make sure it is a good job.
0: And how long from the early stages to... Probably a three-year process. Three years.
1: Yeah, probably two, three years. And in many cases, all of these, what I would call this public-private partnership, these are brand new creatures in a lot of these countries where we're working in really poor countries. So it's not just about those three stages that I talked about, you know, the screening, the feasibility study, then the transaction advisor. In many cases, you have to build, help strengthen what I would call the environment that these PPPs will live in, the regulations. And you have to work with the Ministry of Finance and the line ministries and the regulators to make sure that they know what these projects are and can develop them. And then after they're signed, they can actually manage these for the 10 or 15 year
0: period. So it's not just... Like you're building countries in many ways, like fully functioning countries. Well, PPPs
1: are a very powerful instrument if they are done properly, but it's complicated financial engineering, basically what you're doing. Half of what MCC does or most of what MCC has done historically is here's a check for hundred percent of the highway and we're just going to build it, period. No different than what the World Bank does or any development bank around the world. But when you're doing a PPP, that is a slightly different animal because you are getting the private sector to come, or you're trying to attract them to come in, spend their own money to build the asset that we would normally just do or the government would normally do. You see what I mean?
0: I do. And I know enough to make me a little dangerous here, so please correct (laughs) me if you disagree. (laughs) But that's where the sustainability comes in. That's right. When you have the private sector that's in there because they're all about making money. That's right. And so if they're in it, they're going to do their best to make sure that it really works.
1: Right. And so that brings up a really great point of one of the criticisms of what MCC would do historically, which is, hey, we've got $200 million and we're just going to plunk down a check for $200 million to build this highway from point A to B. But the problem with that is once you've built that, if the countries is like, oh, great, thank you very much, or it's the airport, thank you very much. And they're not necessarily incentivized or capable of managing and sustaining. That asset, the story of international development is the story of development finance DFIs, development finance institutions, whether the World Bank – I'm not picking on the World Bank, but I'm just giving you an example – or any of the regional development banks like the IDB or ADB or whatever, EBRD, is that they finance this infrastructure and then – it is allowed to decay over time. But if you bring in the private sector, you're bringing in the private sector for two reasons. One is they have money and can use their money to build an asset for the public so that the government can use its money to do other things. That's one reason you do it. But the second reason is exactly what you said, is you're bringing their expertise to be able to operate and maintain that asset beautifully over the period, the 10 or 15 year concession period. Airports, if you go to a third world country, a developing country, and you look at airports that are run by the government, oftentimes you will see that they are very poorly run airports. But if you go to one where the private sector is developing, and this is a big caveat, if it is a well-structured concession, then you will see an airport that's got stores. It's basically a mall. It's a beautiful mall with planes coming in, and it's just kind of a win-win for everyone. But you have to structure those PPPs correctly, and that's the needle that you're trying to
0: thread. Let's go back to your days at UT when you were an economics and political philosophy major, mm-hmm. and I assume Spanish was your minor, or was Spanish
1: it? Okay. was my minor. Right. Spanish
0: was your minor you know what you wanted to do?
1: I grew up in El Paso, Texas, which is a border town. And I think that I was always intrigued with what was on other sides of an international border. So for me, just international work, I just wanted to do international work, but I had no idea what that meant. International work is like, oh, I want to do domestic work. That's like, what the hell?
0: Is it like the opposite side of the coin?
1: Right. And you have no idea what it is about international work that is attractive to you. And so I think for me, and i talk talked to a lot of people who are trying to get into international development and are interested in international work just generally. They're as vague as, as I was. And I guess my recommendation to them is just go abroad and start somewhere. Go volunteer somewhere if you can't get a job somewhere. Go do something abroad. And just that experience will help you identify whether you liked what you were doing, or it'll give you a little bit more refinement of what your interests are. And then you'll be a little bit smarter because of that experience. And then step two will be, then you can focus a little bit more. And that's kind of how I did that. I mean, I was wanting to do international. In El Paso, I was able to get a job in Juarez at a maculadora, which is an assembly plant. And that helped me understand cross-border work or manufacturing or the kind of business side of international work.
0: What were you doing at this plant?
1: Basically holding the hands of companies from the Midwest of the U.S., Who were wanting to relocate their manufacturing operations to Mexico in order to be competitive and compete with other people around the world. This was when I was an undergrad, right? So I mean I didn't have any really useful skills.
0: So you went to UT. Yep. And did you know what kind of law you wanted to practice when you graduated?
1: There's two basic roads in law school. One is you can either be a litigator, you can be, you know, courtroom lawyer. Or you can be a transactional lawyer. Those are kind of the two. And I quickly realized that I was not designed to be a litigator. Courtroom was not in my future, but I really quickly understood that I really liked the classes that were more transactional, like property or contracts or securities or business associations, all the business type of classes. And I hadn't really had a lot of those classes as a liberal arts major. And it was just a whole nother world. It was like, oh, wow, business. This, I love this stuff. And this is so interesting. I wish I had done this a lot more in undergraduate. And this is right around the time when NAFTA is starting to be negotiated. North American Free Trade Agreement. North American Free Trade Agreement, my background with variants in Mexico and the border area, that was useful for a business law firm who was wanting to do cross-border work. My first job was just in a tiny little law firm in El Paso, Texas, just doing cross-border business work, primarily tax lawyers representing either Mexican companies coming into the U.S. or U.S. companies going into Mexico. And it was great experience because you're right in the trenches, right on the U.S., El Paso-Juarez border, it's blocking and tackling of international work.
0: So tell us a little bit about what life is like as, as a young attorney in a small law firm versus- A monster one. A monster.
1: I had the opportunity to work in a really small law firm in El Paso, Texas, a medium-sized one, meaning 200, 250 lawyers in Dallas, and then one in Washington that when I probably left was 2,000 lawyers or whatever. I think the big difference is if you're in a small law firm, you definitely know your bosses much more and they know you. And there's still pressures. I mean, you're still under pressure whether it's a small law firm or a big law firm, to bill. So I don't know if there's a huge lot of difference there. But you know your bosses, they know you, and... It's a much more intimate relationship. They're more interested in developing you and so forth. It's more of a personal relationship. If you're in a bigger law firm, it's a spreadsheet. The people in higher management aren't necessarily, they don't really know you or care necessarily about what you are doing. I'm overemphasizing this, but it's more of a numbers game. You know, it's billing, you hit your numbers, bring in business type of thing. In a bigger law firm, you definitely need to be much more careful about charting where you want to go because you've got to be kind of a go-getter and really think about what you want to do and try to get that type of experience within a big law firm.
0: And so how do you do that? How can you be more aggressive in a setting like that? I think you want to
1: find the partners that are doing the type of work that you want to do and you want to cozy up to them and position yourself in the law firm to where that's the kind of work that you want to do. I mean, it's no different than selling yourself in anything. You know, I think some people are just like, oh, well, whatever work comes to me. I think that the beautiful thing about a big law firm is that there's great work there. You know, there's such great work. And if you can be intelligent about sucking the juice out of that great environment Instead of just being lackadaisical or, you know, just taking catch as catch can, but really thinking about the direction that you want to go and using all of those resources to develop where you want to go. I think going to a large law firm is really helpful, but you got to be focused. As an old lawyer once told me, I asked him, I said, why aren't you practicing anymore? And he said, you know, the law profession has developed into some young person's game. It's grueling. It's grueling. And it's no different than investment banking or consulting or being an accountant, whatever. It's hours and it's grueling, but it's great experience. I mean, I'm so happy that I thought... All of that great experience. And
0: I'm so happy I got (laughs) got out of it. Well, I was thinking, I think for some people, it's like once you have kids, the idea that you would be putting in an 18-hour day, six or seven days a week. It's crazy.
1: Yeah. I mean, and people do it. That just wasn't for me. And I think that I had done... The whole legal thing, small, medium, large firm thing. And I realized this wasn't something that I necessarily wanted to do long term. And luckily around that time, that's kind of when MCC was being created in 2004. And it was brand new. I was employee number 50 um, at this thing. And so it was something that
0: like a startup. It was was a a total startup.
1: My first interview was we walked in and there were two chairs. That was it in some phone cord on the floor. And that was it. There was nothing else. It was a true startup.
0: Are you glad that you got your law degree?
1: I wouldn't be able to do what I do now without having been a corporate finance lawyer, for 10 years because you know I was dealing with investors and companies so I understood how business works you know when you're just doing deal after deal after deal you develop a good sense of business and how people think and law really helps you understand private capital works or what their interests are that was invaluable for me. I couldn't do my job now without having been a lawyer beforehand.
0: So let me ask you this for our young listeners who may still be in college, what would you recommend that they study? What type of internships or things do you think that they should get that would maybe tee them up to be competitive to get a job?
1: In international development.
0: In international development and maybe at MCC.
1: I think in international development, you come back to the sustainability perspective. You can't help people unless these programs are sustainable. I mean, you can't help them in the long term unless what you are doing is going to be sustainable. So you need to understand economics or finance. I would recommend that you are at least literate in economics and finance, do liberal arts, but come out of school with where you are literate in both letters meaning you can write and analyze and communicate effectively, but also you're literate in numbers as well. You have some economic or financial literacy because if you're doing international development and trying to develop programs to help people, you have to know the number side in order to ensure that the programs that you're working on are sustainable. Otherwise, so many people who are wanting to save the world and- They were
0: history majors. yeah, Which is a great, great fantastic- But major. they're illiterate
1: All from an economic and financial standpoint. And so come out of college being letters literate and numbers literate.
0: Jim, before we wrap up, could you think about what advice you would have wanted to give Jim when he was in college that you wish you knew then what you know now about life? It's an incredibly stressful time for any young person. Getting jobs. It's like that catch 22, you know, so many times, how do you get that job if you don't have the experience, but what would you have wanted to tell your younger self? So I think aside from the courses,
1: I think you need to have some really basic core skills, which is what we've talked about. The real advantage of being in college or right out of college is that you have nothing to lose. If you want to do international development, you have to get yourself abroad. You've got to go to countries and do stuff in those countries, volunteer, sleep on the ground. This is the time when you live in in a sleeping bag and and be poor and whatever, but put yourself in those situations where you are working abroad for nothing or whatever, just to get that experience so you can understand to give yourself some idea of like, yeah, I like this or I don't like this. Both of those are hugely important because then the next step you can really reflect find kind of the next step of what you want to do. So that's one thing. Second thing is I wasn't a very good networker. And it's hard because sometimes you don't understand what kind of company you want to work for. Try to pinpoint the type of organization that you want to work for and get to know people at that organization. And network, go invite them to coffee, talk to them. I didn't do that. And I wish I had done that. You kind of let your own fear hold you back. Yeah. Go out and talk to these guys. Go out find the organization that you're interested in and you'll
0: find that people at these organizations, they'll talk to you. Can I put an addendum on that point? And that is, let me know here at Time for Coffee, what are the organizations that you're most interested in? And I can try to interview somebody at those organizations for them, if that would actually help in terms of like, which sectors of the company they're most interested in, but maybe I could also be a bridge to try to help. I mean, I'm not necessarily going to be able to get every company, right. but certainly the bigger ones, right. I can try to
1: do that. Just to give you an example where even you came up, I just came back from overseas and I was an Uber, right? And there's this guy who was from Rwanda and he'd actually gone through the genocide there. And he told me he literally walked all the way from Rwanda, all the way through Congo, all the way to Gabon, if you can imagine, all the way across for nine months, the whole thing. And he was super interested in refugees. And he had made his way to the US and he was now working on his PhD in refugee assistance, basically. And he sent out all these resumes to everyone and he was saying, you know, I'm just not getting the bites that I'm on. He hadn't really targeted what specific organization would you like to work for? Would it be like the UN or Red Cross? And I had mentioned Red Cross and he said, Red Cross, they saved me. I would love to work for the Red Cross. And I was like, why don't you go talk to them? He hadn't really identified specific organizations. He was just shotgunning things around. And even with the organizations that he had identified, he was reluctant to reach out to people in those organizations, go talk to them. People will talk to you. I mean, find a connection there. You can always find a connection and go talk to them and show those people that you're interested in their organization. Yes. Do your homework, figure out where do you want to work, talk to people and show them that you're interested in it and you'll get in.
0: And but even some, if you don't get into that organization, you may find out- They're competitors. They can- Yeah. And they can also tell you, you know, you're missing this. It would be great if you had this. So go to another organization, get a job there and fill that part out, you know, in your your skill set, your profile. Exactly. Jim, thank you so much. I think you are yet another example of, I think, proof positive that even if you didn't know exactly how you were going to get here, you figured it out along the way.